In general practice one day, I noticed a new patient had booked in with me, a somewhat frail 73-year-old woman. This lady came into my consulting room and said, Doctor, I need to get tested. I've got an STI. I was somewhat surprised, but in medicine I've learned never to jump to conclusions. Further inquiry revealed that her husband had passed away some years prior and she had not had any further sexual partners. In fact, the nature of her symptoms were a five-year history of intractable vulva itch and skin fragility. She had used many over-the-counter treatments for thrush, and nothing would improve her symptoms. The itch would wake her most nights, and she would struggle walking distances, as would have a tearing sensation and pain. I asked why she thought it could be an STI, and she commented, Surely nothing else would cause these symptoms. I must have picked it up off a public toilet seat. I examined this lady and sure enough, she had classical vulva lichen sclerosis. I am pleased to report that her STI screen was all normal. It has been almost two years now and her symptoms are well controlled and quality of life vastly improved with the treatments we've initiated. Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological. Brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Dr. Sarah Adamson, and I'm a Research and Education Fellow at the Skin Health Institute and a Dermatology Fellow at the Royal Women's Hospital. And my name is Dr. Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, Medical Educator, and Research Fellow at the Skin Health Institute. Today, we are going to take a dive into the various types of female genital dermatoses, including lichen sclerosis, lichen planus, genital herpes, vulvodynia, and malignancies of the vulva. We'll be covering how do these conditions present? How common are they? Why do they develop? And how are they treated? Joining us today is Dr. Emma Vizi, a consultant dermatologist who specializes in female genital dermatoses. Hi, thanks for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Also joining us is Dr. Hong Tran, a consultant obstetrician and gynecologist who has expertise in all aspects of pregnancy, including IVF, high-risk and twin and multiple pregnancies, and a wide range of gynecological services with a special interest in vulval pathology. Hi, thanks for having me here. This is a special episode because both Dr. Vizi and Dr. Tran are integral members of the Vulvar Disorders Multidisciplinary Team at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne. And Annalise and I have both held the Dermatology Fellow position in the past two years in this clinic. Let's start with the basics and ensure we're all on the same page. Hong What are we referring to when we discuss the vulva? Which anatomical bits, so to speak, does it include? Remember, the vulva is the external female genitalia. It's the extension of the skin. So when you look at the vulva, work from outwards inwards. So go from the mons pubis from the top, labia majora, labia minora, the interlabial sulci, clitoris, vestibule, external urethral meatus, and the vaginal orifice. Emma... A very common presentation I see in general practice is vulva itch. What are some causes of this? Well, Annalise, thrush is probably the most common cause. Then dermatitis or eczema, they describe the same thing, which is usually caused by irritants such as washing and soap, but can also be allergic in nature. And people with a background of atopic dermatitis will be more susceptible to this. Then much less commonly, but an important cause of itch is lichen sclerosis. Other conditions we encounter that can cause itch include psoriasis and lichen planus. However, lichen planus or LP is more likely to cause soreness and pain. 
rather than itch. You mentioned lichen sclerosis. What is this and how common is it? Lichen sclerosis, or LS, is a chronic inflammatory skin condition that affects the vulval skin in particular and perianal skin in women and the glands, penis and foreskin in men. It can also be found elsewhere on the body when it is known as extragenital lichen sclerosis. It isn't common and the true prevalence is unknown, mainly due to underreporting and misdiagnosis and very significantly between studies, but is probably around 05 to 1% and increases in frequency with age. So what age does it normally present? It can affect women of any age, including children. However, it's more common postmenopausally. Aside from itch, what other symptoms do women with LS present with? LS can occur around the vulval and anal area, and so you can get symptoms which include irritation, discomfort, and fissures. But also some patients can notice a change with sexual intercourse, so things like dyspareunia due to stenosis or bleeding when they're getting tearing at the perineum. Sometimes patients can also notice a change in the appearance, but remember in 10 to 15% patients will not have any symptoms at all. Emma, do we know what causes LS? Frustratingly, we don't know exactly what causes it, but there's some evidence to support autoimmune and genetic factors, but there's nothing conclusive. Around 10 to 30% of women will have a family history of LS, and there are some weak HLA associations. And autoimmune conditions appear to be more common in women with LS, especially thyroid disease and vitiligo. And there was one small study that is often cited showing an autoantibody to a skin-based protein called ECM1 in a higher proportion of women with LS. However, these findings have never been confirmed since. Epigenetic and hormonal triggers have also been implicated, and local trauma can trigger LS as it's one of the skin conditions that can curbnerize. For those who might not be familiar with this term, cobnerize, the Kobner phenomenon is the appearance of new skin lesions on previously unaffected skin secondary to trauma. The new lesions appear clinically and histologically identical to their underlying skin disease. This can also occur in skin conditions like psoriasis. Now back to lichen sclerosis. Emma, how is it diagnosed? LS is usually diagnosed clinically as it has very characteristic features. These include white sclerotic plaques and fine, wrinkled, cigarette paper-like skin, classically distributed in a figure of eight pattern around the clitoral hood, labia minora, perineum, and perianally. It has a predilection for the partially keratinized mucosa. That's the interlabial sulci, the clitoral hood, and posterior fourchette. Signs of more severe and active disease include hyperkeratotic, thickened, rough areas, fissures, erosions, Petechiae and purpura. What are some structural changes you might see with it? In more advanced disease, you do indeed get structural changes, including resorption of the clitoral hood, burying of the clitoris, loss of the labia minora, and midline fusion. And what's the role of a diagnostic biopsy? Well, when the features are subtle, such as a localized white plaque, or there's unexplained architectural changes, or any suspicion at all of VIN and SCC, which I think we'll talk about later then a biopsy is always indicated. However, biopsy results can also be inconclusive, especially when the clinical features are subtle, so have to be interpreted carefully. The take-home message with biopsy is that if there's any uncertainty, it is important to do and to try and provide a woman with definitive diagnosis, given the long-term implications, including the risk of scarring and SCC development or squamous cell carcinoma, 
and requirement for ongoing treatment and monitoring. I think it's time for our first skin tip. If you're unsure of the diagnosis, but suspect it might be lichen sclerosis, a biopsy is required due to the long-term implications of this diagnosis. I've seen many patients who are quite distressed by how this diagnosis might affect their ability to engage in sexual intercourse. How exactly might it affect this? In a number of different ways. If the skin itself is not under control, then the skin can easily be irritated and develop fissures. But additionally, patients can get this parunium and tearing from the narrowed introitus and webbing of tissue on the anterior and posterior facet. But furthermore, a lot of patients become very self-conscious and this can then impact on a patient's libido as well. If they're getting ongoing pain and irritation every time they're having intercourse, it's going to cause a negative impact on them. What treatment options are available for LS? The mainstay of treatment is with topical steroids, which is generally highly effective. The typical regime is to start with a super or ultra-potent topical steroid, such as clobetazole propionate, or betamethasone dipropionate. We start by doing what's known as a blitz treatment, which is daily or twice daily application for one month, then second daily for a month, then ongoing maintenance depending on the woman's response, which might be to use the topical steroid once or twice a week on an ongoing basis. It is recommended to use about a fingertips unit of topical steroid applied to the vulva and to show a woman via photos or with a mirror where exactly to apply the ointment. The hair-bearing vulval skin over the labia majora should generally be avoided to prevent what we call steroid rosacea, and only a small amount is needed in the perianal skin due to the occlusive effects at that site. How do you decide between all these different topical corticosteroids? We decide according to the severity of the disease. Generally, we start with a super or ultra-potent topical steroid, as I've described, and these include clobetazole propionate, and this is available only as a compounded preparation in Australia. And the standard strength is 0.05%, but we do increase to 0.1% for severe recalcitrant cases. Betamethasone dipropionate OV is available as a proprietary treatment in Australia and is also classed as a super or ultra-potent topical steroid. The OV means optimised vehicle, which allows for better penetrance of the steroid, so it is more potent than standard betamethasone. However, it is expensive for patients as it's not available on the PBS. Moving down in strength of steroid to the moderate potent steroids, we use these for maintenance treatment, and these include standard betamethasone dipropionate and methylprednisolone acepinate, usually in fatty ointment. It's important uh, not to confuse a much weaker topical steroid called clobetazone butyrate with clobetazole propionate. The first is available over the counter and is a much weaker steroid, and often patients can present with a flare in their disease as there's been some confusion over which steroid they should use, and they've been using a significantly weaker one. Finally, it's always preferable to use an ointment rather than a cream, as creams are more likely to cause irritation or allergy. Emma, you mentioned clobetazole propionate is available as a compounded preparation. Is this something that can only be prescribed by dermatologists? No, not at all. Uh, GPs can prescribe it and it's a matter of knowing where patients can get it either locally 
and to give patients good information about affordable uh, chemists that will compound this for them. What's a typical maintenance regimen for clobetazole propionate or betamethasone dipropionate OV? And how can they be weaned? Well, it depends very much on the symptoms and clinical findings. Once a woman is asymptomatic and able to resume usual sexual activity without it flaring, and their skin is essentially normal on examination, then we might reduce the strength of steroid to a moderate potency. Steroids such as methyl, prednisolone, acepinate in fatty ointment two to three times a week. If a woman is flaring regularly, then we would stick with a high potency steroid more frequently. So the maintenance regime needs to be tailored to the individual patient and they can have control over increasing and decreasing their treatment as needed. Generally, we advise they continue with maintenance treatment even if they are completely asymptomatic rather than applying the ointment only in response to symptoms. And a good rule of thumb is to tell patients to use a maximum of 30 grams of a potent topical steroid in three months. And this reassures them that they're not overusing the steroid generally. Do you get worried about cutaneous atrophy? No, I'm more worried about women undertreating themselves. We really never see cutaneous atrophy over the inner vulva. By that, I mean the vestibular wall, clitoral hood, labia minora area. We do sometimes see atrophic changes and what's known as steroid rosacea over the labia majora and perianal region, but that can be avoided with careful education of the patients about where to apply the ointment and how much. Also, those changes are largely reversible once the steroid is ceased. Hong, I know you see many patients with LS in our vulvar disorders clinic as well. What's the gynecologist's role in detecting and managing LS? The gynecologist would have the same role as the dermatologist in helping diagnose and manage lichen sclerosis. And for those patients who are stable, having a yearly review looking for any precancerous and cancerous changes... But additionally, it's very important to also review the impact on bowel, bladder and sexual function. For anyone who is needing surgical treatment for any precancerous or cancerous lesions, the gynecologist will uh, be able to manage this as well as helping surgically with any scarring that is causing a functional impact. Hung, you mentioned precancerous or cancerous changes. Could you expand on that a little bit further? In 3 to 5% of untreated patients, vulval squamous cell carcinoma can develop. So it is very important in detecting patients with lichen sclerosis, providing the education from the beginning and also then getting them on treatment and having ongoing follow-up and monitoring. What types of signs or symptoms might patients with precancerous or cancerous changes present with in LS? So patients can have ongoing irritation that's no longer responding to their medication or they can notice a new lesion. But I would also always reassure patients that just because they have these symptoms, they don't necessarily have cancer. It's always worth getting it re-looked at earlier just to exclude it. From a person who's looking at the vulval area, if uh, there is a focal area of a raised white or red area, then these should be biopsied. I think many doctors might feel a bit apprehensive in performing a biopsy on the vulva for the first time. Is a vulval punch biopsy any different from a punch biopsy elsewhere on the body? In general, it's the same technique, but a couple of things just to be mindful of when it comes to the vulval area. Got to be careful, rethink about the location quite carefully. There's certain areas you want to avoid, the clitoral area, which has got a very good nerve supply. 
But also just be mindful of patients with the thin labia minora. If you do a punch biopsy there, there's a high risk of creating a buttonhole through this. So in general, when I do a biopsy, I use 2% xylocaine um, using a 25 gauge needle. So the smallest needle you can find. It's a four millimeter punch biopsy. So aiming it at 90 degrees to the skin and then snipping uh, or suturing the base. Most of us gynecologists would not put a stitch in a four millimeter punch biopsy, but we would then use Moncel's paste to help decrease uh, bleeding. Be very careful not to crush the specimen. And if it's on the inner mucosal area, this area is quite fragile. And alternatively, you might use the suture and snip technique. The suture and snip technique involves using a suture into the fragile tissue so that you can easily pull the tissue away without crushing the specimen. And then you just cut around at the base. It does create a bigger specimen. And often with these, then you do need to have a stitch uh, to close the area. There's no problems with punch biopsies also closing the area with a dissolvable suture. Usually we would use a vical repede, uh, the smallest needle coming in the size of a 3.0. Do patients with LS need to stay on lifelong maintenance treatment? Well, LS is a chronic condition and ongoing maintenance treatment will provide better symptom control limit further scarring and architectural changes to their vulva and probably reduce the risk of SCC development. We don't really have the data regarding the likelihood of it becoming inactive and being able to stop treatment. Our current advice to women is that treatment will need to be long-term, like taking a blood pressure medication or thyroxine, for example. What general vulval skincare advice do you offer these patients? This is an absolutely critical part of successful treatment. As part of the initial consultation, it's important to review all their current washing and cleaning habits. What they use in the shower, how many times a day do they wash, as some women will wash many times a day, and whether they use wet wipes and what else they're putting on their vulva. Before receiving a diagnosis of LS, women will try all sorts of home remedies and often wash more as water can provide some relief for the itch. This will then probably produce a secondary irritant dermatitis. What do you recommend that they use to wash or bathe with? I then advise them to use something extremely bland, such as epiderm or emulsifying ointment. I recommend applying this ointment to the vulval skin before they hop in the shower, and once in the shower, just to use their hand rather than a face washer, as this can be abrasive, to wash with. This acts as a barrier to the water, and I reassure them that it will clean the skin adequately and also warn them that the skin will feel a little greasy afterwards. Other products such as aqueous cream can also be used for this purpose, but they shouldn't be left on the skin. I recommend a soap-free wash for the rest of the skin and to avoid any soap at all running onto the vulva and to avoid shampoo running down the back. What kind of post-shower or bath routine do you recommend? After showering, I suggest applying a simple bland emollient consisting of white soft paraffin and liquid paraffin, such as Dermis or Vaseline, and specifically to avoid anything cream-based. Depending on a woman's preferences and tolerance to that feeling of greasiness, this can be applied a couple of times a day and before bed. It serves to reduce friction and act as a barrier if there is any incontinence, and can also be used as a lubricant. I write all of this down and explain that if it's not on the sheet I give them, then don't put it on their vulva. I think that calls for another skin tip. 
Patients with a diagnosis of lichen sclerosis will have to be on lifelong treatment with topical steroids, which will be tailored to their clinical findings and likely need to be adjusted over time. Baseline vulval skin care is an incredibly important part of their management, requiring a soap-free wash or bland emollient in the shower, followed by application of a barrier ointment, such as dermis, immediately after the shower and throughout the day. Emma, do you offer any additional advice to women with urinary incontinence? Yes, this is often a big problem for women as it will exacerbate any pre-existing vulval condition, including LS, and create new problems such as irritant dermatitis. I recommend the application of a barrier ointment consisting of white soft paraffin and liquid paraffin, such as dermis, as I already mentioned. However, some women really don't like this as they feel it slides off their skin. So alternatives include zinc oxide-based creams, such as pseudocreme. It's essential to find a barrier cream or ointment that they like and will use. I recommend reapplying this every time they go to the bathroom. When do you recommend GPs refer to a dermatologist or gynecologist for management of LS? Well, many GPs are able to diagnose and manage LS. However, as a general rule, I would recommend referring all women with suspected LS, any women with persistent itch despite simple treatments for thrush and dermatitis, and any woman who reports a change in their vulval skin or architecture. Women can be asymptomatic, and those skin or architectural changes might be an incidental finding when they go for cervical screening or a change of their IUD, and they should also be referred. Back to the other causes of vulval itch. How do we exclude these causes in our LS patients? And what tests should we perform to diagnose and exclude these causes? It's important always to remember other conditions that can coexist with LS, in particular eczema or dermatitis and thrush. Thickened eczema or lichen simplex chronicus may arise from chronic scratching of the underlying LS. Otherwise, irritant contact or less commonly allergic contact dermatitis can arise in the setting of LS. Clues in the history for a coexistent irritant dermatitis are their washing practices. Are they washing with imperial leather soap or Dettol, which is common? Do they have some level of urinary incontinence? Are they using wipes to clean and how often are they washing? Just water alone will trigger irritant contact dermatitis. Dermatitis will present with more widespread erythema, particularly over the labia majora, extending into the inguinal creases and perianal area, often with areas of lichenification. Thrush may also coexist with LS and present with a flare and itch. Clues in the history for thrush include a premenstrual flare and itch, associated discharge, soreness, burning, recent antibiotic use, the use of a local estrogen, a history of poorly controlled diabetes, and diabetic medication that increases the urinary glucose, such as the SGLT2 inhibitors. And also it'll get worse with the topical steroids. Ever wondered what the Skin Health Institute does? At the Skin Health Institute, based in Melbourne, we aim to improve skin health for all our patients and the research we conduct shapes clinical treatment and practice. We provide over 30,000 patient treatments each year and also deliver exceptional education programs for dermatologists, registrars and healthcare workers, specialist training for visiting international medical graduates, workshops to upskill GPs and medical students, and public education programs aimed at improving skin health in the community. The Institute also conducts clinical trials and research projects that are published and presented internationally. We make substantial contributions to the worldwide clinical care and management of skin diseases, skin cancer and melanoma, and are recognised globally for our medical research. 
We have multiple clinics for GPs to directly refer patients to. GPs can complete our online referral form available on our website at skinhealthinstitute.org.au forward slash patient referrals or email referrals to referrals at skinhealthinstitute.org.au. Apart from itch, what symptoms might patients with thrush experience? Women will commonly experience soreness, burning, burning and stinging, stinging with urination, along with vaginal discharge and pain with intercourse, and a postcoital flare in the itch. What are the different causative organisms for thrush? Most commonly, it's candida albicans. Around 10 to 20% of chronic recurrent thrush will be non-albicans, namely candida glabrata. And it's important to do a swab, particularly if they haven't responded to the initial treatment. And what examination findings would you expect? Often in these cases, the vulva is quite red and swollen. There will be fissures in the intersulci area as well as the perineum. And they can also have white discharge on the coating the vulval area. If you look closely, they'll also have these satellite red lesions that can spread from the labia majora going out to the perianal area. Be mindful to monitor and look in the other areas of the body, in the groins, under the breast and on the perineum as well. Sometimes if you do the examination during uh, their cycle when they're menstruating, the findings can look completely normal as well. Should we routinely perform a swab to confirm thrush? Ideally, yes. However, this is often not practical and many women will report that they know exactly what their thrush feels like and they can self-manage this. However, particularly in recurrent thrush or itch not responding to treatment, then a swab is important. How do you treat simple thrush? Usually this can be self-managed with over-the-counter treatments such as a single dose of fluconazole, 150 milligrams, or a vaginal azole cream such as clotrimazole inserted at night as a single dose, or nightly for three to seven days, or a clotrimazole pessary as a stat dose. Recurrent vulvovaginal candidiasis is a particularly common issue that I see in GP. How do you approach managing this? There are many different approaches, depending on which country you're practicing in. My regime, which is based on several different guidelines, is to use fluconazole, 150 milligrams every third day for three doses, then 150 milligrams once a week for six months. This generally works very well in suppressing recurrence while on treatment, but unfortunately relapse is high on stopping. If they're unable to take the fluconazole, then I would use nystatin cream nightly for two weeks, then once a week also for six months, or an azole cream or pessary. And new therapies are available in the US, but unfortunately not yet in Australia. What about thrush in pregnancy? This is actually very common. The increase in hormones in pregnancy puts patients prone to getting thrush. A lot of patients, though, are not symptomatic from their thrush in pregnancy, so only treat if they are symptomatic, if they're having issues with itch or irritation. The preferred management would be a six-day course of co-trimazole, and often they need to repeat this a few times as well. Alternatively, they can safely use nystatin cream or pessaries as well. Unfortunately, in pregnancies, we would not be using fluconazole, boric acid or itraconazole. These are all contraindicated during pregnancy but safe to use whilst breastfeeding. Are there any risk factors for developing recurrent candidiasis? And is there anything patients can do to modify their lifestyle to prevent future recurrence? All patients will ask you this and want to know what they can do differently. 
in particular what dietary factors might be playing a role. Most have tried a low yeast or low sugar diet, for example. I reassure them that thrush and chronic thrush generally affects healthy women, that there is nothing wrong with their immune system, and that unless they have poorly controlled diabetes, then diet won't be playing a role. The only proven risk factors, as I mentioned earlier, are poorly controlled diabetes, topical estrogen, broad-spectrum antibiotics, and certain diabetic medications, namely the SGLT2 inhibitors, which increase glucose in the urine, and it is not related to dietary sugar or yeast. Importantly, reassure them treating their sexual partner does not make any difference, and neither do probiotics. Now, moving on to a different genital dermatosis, lichen planus, or LP. What is it, and what causes it to develop? LP is also considered to be an autoimmune skin condition, but the exact cause is unknown. We don't know what the triggers are either, unfortunately. How does a different presentation from LS, and where else on the body might you find it? It tends to present less with itch and more with soreness and pain, with sexual intercourse in particular. There are three main types affecting the genital skin. The most common is erosive LP. The other types are classic and very rarely hypertrophic. Erosive LP has a typical appearance of erosions and glazed erythema around the vestibular wall, often with a hyperkeratotic border. You may see classic Wickham striae, which is a white lacy appearance over the labia minora. It can also result in severe scarring and can coexist with LS. Many patients often have overlap features of both conditions. Importantly, it can affect the vagina, and these women require speculum examination to examine the vaginal mucosa. And you also need to examine the rest of the skin for signs of LP elsewhere, including the scalp, mouth, and nails. Is there a role for biopsy? Biopsy is important in this situation. It helps then determine the type of lichen planus, but remember, you're also going to be giving the patients a chronic diagnosis. So confirming it from the beginning is important. Additionally, if you're uncertain about unusual red area, having a biopsy can help exclude cancer as well. Does LP affect sexual intercourse any differently than LS does? With lichen sclerosis, uh, most of the area involved is going to be on the vulval area. Rarely does it involve the vagina, whereas when it comes to lichen planus, especially erosive lichen planus, up to 70% of females can have vaginal involvement. And this can cause not only shortening in the length of the vagina, but also can cause a narrowing in the opening as well. So patients can result in bleeding and pain with intercourse. How is lichen planus treated? Is it any different from the treatment of LS? It's treated very similarly to LS, but unfortunately can be much more resistant to treatment. And usually you start again with a superpotent topical steroid, as for LS, but may need to continue with more frequent application and for longer. Women with erosive LP will often require second-line treatment. In the first instance, we would typically start neural corticosteroid around 0.5 milligrams per kilogram and then wean the dose and add in methotrexate depending on the patient's comorbidities and other medications. Often ongoing dual immunosuppressive therapy is required to achieve good control and we use other agents such as hydroxychloroquine and mycophenolate mofetil and we are starting to use biologic agents but these have no proven efficacy at this stage. Do patients with LP also have to stay on lifelong treatment? LP is a chronic disease like LS and needs to be treated that way. 
It may become inactive, but I generally advise women that treatment is very long term, if not lifelong. Also, they need regular review to check for disease activity, progression of scarring, and any features suspicious of VIN or SCC, although the malignant potential of erosive LP is not known, and probably much less than LS. I think it's time for another skin tip. Both lichen sclerosis and lichen planus need lifelong monitoring of disease for complications such as scarring. And look out for any suspicious features for VIN or SCC that need to be biopsied. Hong, what's the gynecologist's role in detecting and managing LP? Once again, our role is very similar to the dermatologist in terms of helping uh, with the diagnosis from the beginning, but also importantly to minimise scarring. By starting treatment early and monitoring for vaginal involvement, having regular vaginal examinations. If there is vaginal involvement, some patients may need surgical correction for this. Also, every time the patients are having an assessment, we are also screening for cancer and precancerous changes as well. How can GPs contribute to the management of LP and LS? Well, once your satisfied symptoms are well controlled and skin changes have largely resolved, At the women's hospital, we will discharge women back to their GP for ongoing follow-up and monitoring. That is, if their GP is comfortable managing it long-term. We recommend a maintenance regime with topical steroids and that they are examined at least annually. This is always with the understanding that they can be re-referred with a flare-up or new clinical findings. What are other common causes of vulval pain? We can break it down into several different categories, but importantly, there's infection, dermatosis, precancerous changes, and cancer. People often think about vulvodynia, but remember this is a diagnosis of exclusion, so you do want to exclude all the other causes first. So what is vulvodynia? The true definition of vulvodynia is chronic pain or discomfort around the opening of the vagina where there's no identifiable cause found and the pain has lasted for more than three months. What is provoked vestibulodynia? Provoked vestibulodynia if you break it down into the two components. So vestibulodynia is just referring to the site of where the pain is, and that's in the vestibular area. And provoked means when the area is pressed, you can reproduce that again every time you do an examination. Do we know what causes either? So vulvodynia, there's two types. There's the primary, where people can be born with it. They only first realise aware about it when they first try and insert a tampon or first try and be sexually active. For patients with secondary vulvodynia, often they have been able to be sexually active previously and then at some point onwards they notice that every time they are sexually active they get pain. Often this change in event has been caused by some sort of trauma to the vulval area and this trauma can come in the format of chronic infections such as thrush, vaginal delivery or uh, painful dry intercourse. We do also know that in these areas, there's increased nerves. So when the area is touched or triggered, patients will classically describe the sensation as a burning or sharp shooting pain. The pain can still continue even after the stimuli is taken away. Emma, as a dermatologist, how do you encounter this clinically? We often get referred patients to rule out a dermatological cause, of the pain, such as erosive lichen planus or dermatitis. But often we're looking back for that episode of trauma 
or infection that Hong mentioned. So we will go back and identify that they actually did have thrush or they had a traumatic vaginal delivery and a tear. And ever since they've had pain with intercourse. Hong, are there any treatment options for vulvodynia? There are certainly a number of different treatment options. And we do know that with each of them, there is about a 60 to 70% effective rate. But when you combine all of these or a number of these together, the effective rate can improve. But it is also important to explain to patients that none of these are going to be quick fixes. It's going to take time. And often by the time they start a management, it can take a good three to six months before they're starting to notice changes. So often they will need a multidisciplinary team, which includes then uh, a doctor that would help prescribe some of the medications. And the medications would be nerve modulators, including either amitriptyline, nortriptyline, pregabalin, uh, gabapentin, are some uh, examples. And some of these can come in the format of tablets or compounded as a cream. And just being mindful that if you are using a cream, 10 to 20% can get a local burning reaction from the cream. Additionally to the medications, there's physiotherapy and the physiotherapist will provide biofeedback, which often includes using dilators to help decrease the increased pressure around the ligaments. Uh, Psychologists can be quite important for CBT. And in a small group of patients, Surgery may be an option, and these uh, patients would have a vestibulectomy or even um, the periurethral glands would be removed. There are emerging evidence also for other methods of management, including Botox, HENS, and acupuncture, uh, but there's limited research in these. Let's quickly touch on one of the other common causes of pain of the vulva, genital herpes. How does this usually present? Often it depends on whether it's a primary or or recurrence, uh, but usually it's painful ulcers or blisters, which can be single or multiple lesions. If it's the first presentation, often they've got severe pain, difficulty in ability to urinate, and the vulva is quite red and swollen as well. How do we confirm a diagnosis of a herpes simplex virus or HSV? Well, clinically, you'll see typical features of a cluster of shallow ulcers on the vulva, including the mucosal skin. And this will be confirmed by PCR from a viral swab. How is it best treated? Antivirals is the mainstay with either acyclovir or famcyclovir as examples. If they've got multiple recurrent episodes, then uh, they should also consider being on a prophylactic antiviral as well. What are the signs of recurrence? Do you have to have a vesicle for it to be active? Or is vulval pain alone a sign of recurrence? Typically, a recurrence will result in pain in association with the vesicles and erosions and the other accompanying symptoms such as dysuria. You're most infectious when you have active lesions. However, there can be viral shedding one to two weeks after an episode and even when completely asymptomatic. Reassuringly though, and it's important to tell women this, Studies have shown that transmission of the virus is extremely low between outbreaks. I often see first episodes of genital HSV in general practice. This consultation is often very distressing for those impacted. Hong, what advice do you give your patients with HSV in regards to future sexual partners? Understandably, I mean, these patients will feel quite self-conscious about the diagnosis. 
Often I refer them to the Melbourne Sexual Health website, have some great information about how they can disclose this to their partners as well. So worth uh, referring them to that website. But firstly, it's about being quite encouraging of patients to say that it's important for them to notify partners because then they're aware they can go and get screened if they do start to have symptoms. But also we do know that risk of transmission can definitely be reduced by having an open disclosure between partners uh, so that they uh, are treated and avoid being sexually active when they've got active lesions, but also encouraging them to use condoms as well. What features are suggestive of recurrent genital ulcers being due to a diagnosis other than HSV? If there's a history of genital ulcers, then you have to think about a wide range of possible causes from non-sexually acquired genital ulcers, simple aphthous ulcers, inflammatory causes such as Bechet's or Crohn's disease, drug reactions, in particular fixed drug eruption, and blistering diseases such as mucous membrane pemphigoid, malignancy, and of course, infectious causes. The most common cause of ulceration we see, in particular in teenagers and young women, is apthosis and non-sexually acquired genital ulceration. Non-sexually acquired genital ulceration will typically follow a febrile illness, such as tonsillitis, and are most often due to Epstein-Barr virus. Unlike the multiple erosions of HSV, however, there'll be only one to three well-defined, punched-out ulcers with a yellowish, sloughy base on the mucosal or adjacent skin. And like HSV, they will be exquisitely painful and be associated with dysuria. There may also be local enlarged lymph nodes. Simple aphthous ulcers are essentially the same as non-sexually acquired genital ulceration, however less severe and not associated generally with a preceding illness or EBV. These patients may also report a history of mouth ulcers and generally non-sexually acquired genital ulceration and simple abscess ulcers will respond rapidly to potent topical steroids, whereas HSV won't. Crohn's ulceration, always an important one to think about, although unusual, tends to have deep linear ulcers known as knife-cut fissures, often in the labial creases and perianal skin. The ulcers of Bechet's, which dermatologists always think about, can resemble simple abscess ulcers, so must be considered if there are other features, such as oral ulcers, pathogy, ocular involvement, etc. As I said, there are a huge variety of causes, including nutritional, connective tissue disease-related, immunobolus, infective and malignant, and these all need to be considered. We mentioned earlier some red flags for malignancy of the vulva. What types of malignancy or pre-malignant lesions do you find on the vulva? All malignancies, squamous cell carcinoma is the most common, but then you've got the less common such as your adenocarcinoma, melanoma, sarcoma and Paget's disease. For pre-malignant lesions, we've got the HPV or the non-HPV related uh, precancerous change. What is vulval intraepithelial neoplasia or VIN? So this is a considered a precancerous condition, usually non-invasive squamous lesion. And if left alone, 30% can progress on to cancer. What are the two types of VIN? They can be split into two types, uh, HPV related or non-HPV related, which is considered the skin dermatosis, such as um, associated with lichen sclerosis. And in a broader category, these can be called differentiated VIN. How do these present clinically? Sometimes they can be quite asymptomatic, 
but other patients may notice an area of irritation or pruritus that continues to persist uh, and often they've been treating it for recurrent thrush. Rarely do they uh, present with just pain. What are the main risk factors for these pre-malignant or malignant lesions? For the HPV-related lesions, risk factors would be smokers, those with HPV on the cervix, those who are immunocompromised. Whereas for non-HPV-related, it will be patients with skin dermatosis, such as lichen sclerosis, and to a lesser degree, lichen planus. And how can these pre-malignant or malignant conditions be prevented? For the HPV-related ones, having the vaccine early, uh, before, uh, preferably before they are sexually active, ensure that their skin conditions, their lichen sclerosis is well controlled, and if they do smoke, them to quit. But also importantly, with these conditions, having regular screening of the vulval area. How do we usually investigate? Do you usually biopsy or send straight to theatre for excision by the gynecology team? Biopsy is always very important because sometimes what seems to be a precancerous change may not. So you don't want to be excising or going to surgery unless you need to. So the biopsy is a smaller sample of the area. So As a routine practice, we would prefer a biopsy first, Uh, but also sometimes you may get caught out and it can actually be cancer. And then we would know then at the time of surgery, they need to have a significantly deeper excision with a clearer margin as well. How are these lesions treated? For HPV-related VIN, the options would include surgery, and surgery would include either excising it or laser treatment of the area. And often we would pick laser treatment for non-hair-bearing area. The benefit of laser treatment is you're removing less um, tissue and it preserves more of the architecture. Sometimes we would consider medications, and the medication here of choice would be imiquimod. And this would be especially for patients with multiple lesions or who have had surgery and are keen to avoid surgery. Prior to using the medication, you have to be confident that there is no cancer there. For non-HPV-related VIN, surgery is usually a preferred option, mainly because they've got a higher risk of developing into cancer. What is the prognosis for each of these pre-malignant or malignant conditions? Unfortunately, we've got very limited data on this. And with the HPV, the thought is about 8% can actually develop into cancer despite ongoing surveillance. A third will have recurrence, and usually that recurrence would occur in the first year. Um, But there is emerging evidence that even after 15 years, they can also have recurrence. So unfortunately, patients who have had a HPV then would be recommended to have ongoing follow-up. For non-HPV VIN, there is a higher recurrence rate and cancer risk rate of up to 80%. This all really highlights the importance of both vulval self-examination, presenting to your GP if you have any persisting or concerning symptoms, and also keeping up to date with your cervical screening. On that note, we'll conclude our episode on female genital dermatoses. Thank you, Emma and Hong, for your time and sharing your expertise with us. Thanks very much for having us both. Thank you. We would like to thank our producer and supervisor, Associate Professor Elvin Chong at the Skin Health Institute. We'd also like to thank the education team at Skin Health Institute. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, 
we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. For listeners who want more information on the subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. The Skin Health Institute would like to thank our institute partner, Melbourne Pathology, for their support of the whole Spot Diagnosis podcast series, and our partner, Bristol Myers Squibb, for supporting this episode.